Chapter forty nine of Tess of the D'Urbervilles. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Tess of the D'Urbervilles by Thomas Hardy. Read by Adrian Pretzelis. Chapter forty nine. The appeal duly found its way to the breakfast table of the quiet vicarage to the westward in that valley where the air is so soft and the soil so rich that the effort of growth requires but superficial aid by comparison with the tillage at Flintcombe Ash, and where, to Tess, the human world seemed so different, though it was much the same. It was purely for security that she had been requested by Angel to send her communications through his father whom he kept pretty well informed of his changing addresses in the country he had gone to to exploit for himself, with a heavy heart. "'Now,' said old Mr. Clare to his wife, when he had read the envelope, "'if Angel proposes leaving Rio for a visit home at the end of next month, as he told us he hoped to do, I hope this may hasten his plans, for I believe it to be from his wife. He breathed deeply at the thought of her, and the letter was redirected to be promptly sent on to Angel. "'Dear fellow, I hope he will get home safely,' murmured Mrs. Clare. "'To my dying day I shall feel that he has been ill-used. You should have sent him to Cambridge, in spite of his want of faith, and given him the same chance the other boys had.' he would have grown out of it under proper influence, and perhaps would have taken orders after all. Church or no church, it would have been fairer to him." This was the only wail with which Mrs. Clare ever disturbed her husband's peace in respect to their sons, and she did not vent this often, for she was as considerate as she was devout and knew that his mind, too, was troubled by doubts as to his justice in this matter. Only too often had she heard him lying awake at night, stifling sighs for Angel with prayers. But the uncompromising Evangelical did not even now hold that he would have been justified in giving his son, an unbeliever, the same academic advantages that he had given the two others, when it was possible if not probable, that those very advantages might have been used to decry the doctrines which he had made it his life's mission desire to propagate, and the mission of his ordained sons likewise. To put with one hand a pedestal under the feet of the two faithful ones, and with the other to exalt the unfaithful by the same artificial means, he deemed to be alike inconsistent with his convictions, his position, and his hopes. Nevertheless, he loved his misnamed angel, and in secret mourned over this treatment of him, as Abraham might have mourned over the doomed Isaac while they went up the hill together. His silent, self-generated regrets were far bitterer than the reproaches which his wife rendered audible. They blamed themselves for this unlucky marriage. If angel had never been destined for a farmer, he would never have been thrown with agricultural girls. 
They did not distinctly know what had separated him and his wife, nor the date on which the separation had taken place. At first they supposed it must be something of the nature of a serious aversion, but in his later letters he occasionally alluded to the intention of coming home to fetch her, from which expressions they hoped the division might not owe its origin to anything so hopelessly permanent as that. He had told them that she was with her relatives, and in their doubts they had decided not to intrude into a situation which they knew no way of bettering. The eyes for which Tess's letter was intended were gazing at this time on a limitless expanse of country from the back of a mule which was bearing him from the interior of the South American continent towards the coast. His experiences of this strange land had been sad. The severe illness from which he had suffered shortly after his arrival had never wholly left him and he had by degrees almost decided to relinquish his hope of farming here, though as long as the bare possibility existed of his remaining he kept this change of view a secret from his parents. The crowds of agricultural labourers who had come out to the country in his wake, dazzled by representations of easy independence, had suffered, died, and wasted away. He would see mothers from English farms trudging along with their infants in their arms, when the child would be stricken with fever and would die. The mother would pause to dig a hole in the loose earth with her bare hands, would bury the babe therein with the same natural grave-tools, shed one tear, and again trudge on. Angel's original intention had not been emigration to Brazil but a northern or eastern farm in his own country. He had come to this place in a fit of desperation, the Brazil movement among the English agriculturalists having by chance coincided with his desire to escape from his past existence. During this time of absence he had mentally aged a dozen years. What arrested him now as of value in life was less its beauty than its pathos. Having long discredited the old systems of mysticism, he now began to discredit the old appraisements of morality. He thought they wanted readjusting. Who was the moral man? Still, more pertinently, who was the moral woman? The beauty or ugliness of a character lay not only in its achievements, but in its aims and impulses. Its true history lay not among things done, but among things willed. How, then, about Tess? Viewing her in these lights, a regret for his hasty judgment began to oppress him. Did he reject her eternally, or did he not? He could no longer say that he would always reject her, and not to say that was in spirit to accept her now. This growing fondness for her memory coincided in point of time with her residence at Flintcomb Ash, but it was before she had found herself at liberty to trouble him with a word about her circumstances or her feelings. He was greatly perplexed, and in his perplexity as to her motives in withholding intelligence he did not inquire. Thus her silence of docility was misinterpreted how much it really said, if he had understood, 
that she adhered with literal exactness to orders which he had given and forgotten, that despite her natural fearlessness she asserted no rights, admitted his judgment to be in every respect the true one, and bent her head dumbly thereto. In the before-mentioned journey by mules through the interior of the country, another man rode beside him. Angel's companion was also an Englishman, bent on the same errand, though he came from another part of the island. They were both in a state of mental depression, and they spoke of home affairs. Confidence begat confidence. With that curious tendency evinced by men, more especially when in distant lands, to entrust to strangers details of their lives which they would on no account mention to friends, Angel admitted to this man, as they rode along, the sorrowful facts of his marriage. The stranger had sojourned in many more lands and among many more peoples than Angel. To his cosmopolitan mind such deviations from the social norm, so immense to domesticity, were no more than the irregularities of vale and mountain chain to the whole terrestrial curve. He viewed the matter in quite a different light from Angel, thought that what Tess had been was of no importance besides what she would be, and plainly told Clare that he was wrong in coming away from her. The next day they were drenched in a thunderstorm. Angel's companion was struck down with fever, and died by the week's end. Clare waited a few hours to bury him, and then went on his way. The cursory remarks of the large-minded stranger, of whom he knew absolutely nothing beyond a mere commonplace name, were sublimed by his death, and influenced Clare more than all the reasoned ethics of the philosophers. His own parochialism made him ashamed by its contrast. His inconsistencies rushed upon him in a flood. He had persistently elevated Hellenic paganism at the expense of Christianity. Yet in that civilization an illegal surrender was not certain disesteem. Surely then he might have regarded the abhorrence of the unintact state which he had inherited with the creed of mysticism as at least open to correction when the result was due to treachery. Remorse struck into him. The words of Is Hewitt never quite stilled in his memory, came back to him. He had asked Is if she loved him, and she had replied in the affirmative. Did she love him more than Tess did? No, she had replied. Tess would lay down her life for him, and she herself could do no more. He thought of Tess as she had appeared on the day of the wedding. How her eyes had lingered upon him how she had hung upon his words as if they were a god's. And during the terrible evening over the hearth, when her simple soul uncovered itself to his, how pitiful her face had looked by the rays of the fire, in her inability to realize that his love and protection could possibly be withdrawn. Thus, from being her critic, he grew to be her advocate. Cynical things he had uttered to himself about her, but no man can be always a cynic and live, and he withdrew them. 
The mistake of expressing them had arisen by his allowing himself to be influenced by general principles to the disregard of the particular instance. But the reasoning is somewhat musty. Lovers and husbands have gone over the ground before to-day. Clare had been harsh towards her, there was no doubt of it. Men are too often harsh with women they love or have loved, women with men. And yet these harshnesses are tenderness itself when compared with the universal harshness out of which they grow, the harshness of the position towards the temperament, of the means towards the aims, of to-day towards yesterday, of hereafter towards to-day. The historic interest of her family, that masterful line of d'Urbervilles, whom he had despised as a spent force, touched his sentiments now. Why had he not known the difference between the political value and the imaginative value of these things? In the latter aspect her d'Urberville descent was a fact of great dimensions. Worthless to economics, it was a most useful ingredient to the dreamer, to the moralizer on declines and falls. It was a fact that would soon be forgotten that bit of distinction in poor Tess's blood and name, and oblivion would fall upon her hereditary link with the marble monuments and leaded skeletons at Kingsbere. So does time ruthlessly destroy his own romances. In recalling her face again and again, he thought now that he could see therein a flash of the dignity which must have graced her grandams and the vision sent that aura through his veins which he had formerly felt, and which left behind it a sense of sickness. Despite her not inviolate past, what still abode in such a woman as Tess outvalued the freshness of her fellows? Was not the gleaning of the grapes of Ephraim better than the vintage of Abiezer? So spoke love renaissance preparing the way for Tess's devoted outpouring, which was then just being forward to him by his father, though owing to his distance inland it was to be a long time in reaching him. Meanwhile the writer's expectation that Clare would come in response to the entreaty was alternately great and small. What lessened it was that the facts of her life which had led to the parting had not changed, could never change and that, if her presence had not attenuated them, her absence could not. Nevertheless she addressed her mind to the tender question of what she could do to please him best if he should arrive. Sighs were expended on the wish that she had taken more notice of the tunes he played on his harp, that she had inquired more curiously of him which were his favourite ballads among those the country girls sang. She indirectly inquired of Amby Seedling, who had followed Liz from Talbothays, and, by chance, Amby remembered that, amongst the snatches of melody in which they had indulged at the dairyman's to induce the cows to let down their milk, Clare had seemed to like Cupid's Gardens, I Have Parks, I Have Hounds, and The Break of the Day, and had not seemed to care for The Tailor's Breeches and Such a Beauty I Did Grow excellent ditties as they were. To perfect the ballads was now her whimsical desire. 
She practised them privately at odd moments, especially the break of the day. Arise, 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 and pick your love a posy, all of the sweetest flowers that in the garden grow, the turtle-doves and small birds in every bower building, so early in the maytime, at the break of the day. It would have melted the heart of stone to hear her singing these ditties whenever she worked apart from the rest of the girls in this cold, dry time, the tears running down her cheeks all the while at the thought that perhaps he would not, after all, come to hear her, and the simple, silly words of the songs resounding in painful mockery of the aching heart of the singer. Tess was so wrapped up in this fanciful dream that she seemed not to know how the season was advancing, that the days had lengthened, that Lady Day was at hand, and would soon be followed by Old Lady Day, the end of her term here. But before the quarter-day had quite come, something happened which made Tess think of far different matters. She was at her lodging, as usual, one evening sitting in the downstairs room with the rest of the family, when somebody knocked at the door and inquired for Tess. Through the doorway she saw against the declining light a figure with the height of a woman and the breadth of a child—a tall, thin, girlish creature, whom she did not recognize in the twilight till the girl said, "'Tess!' "'What? Is it Liza Lou?' asked Tess in startled accents. Her sister, whom a little over a year ago she had left at home as a child, had sprung up by a sudden shoot to a form of this presentation, of which as yet Lou seemed herself scarce able to understand the meaning. Her thin legs, visible below her once long frock, now short by her growing, and her uncomfortable hands and arms revealed her youth and inexperience. "'Yes, I have been traipsing about all day, Tess,' said Lou, with unemotional gravity, "'a-trying to find ye, and I'm very tired.' "'What is the matter at home?' "'Mother is took very bad, and the doctor says she's dying, and his father is not very well neither, and says tis wrong for a man of such high family as his to slave and drave at common labouring work, and we don't know what to do.' Tess stood in reverie a long time before she thought of asking Liza Lou to come in and sit down. When she had done so, and Liza Lou was having some tea, she came to a decision. It was imperative that she should go home. Her agreement did not end till Old Lady Day, the 6th of April, but as the interval there too was not a long one, she resolved to run the risk of starting at once. To go that night would be a gain of twelve hours but her sister was too tired to undertake such a distance till the morrow. Tess ran down to where Marian and Iers lived, informed them of what had happened, and begged them to make the best of her case with the farmer. Returning she got Lou a supper, and after that, having tucked the younger up into her own bed, packed up as many of her belongings as would go into a withy basket, and started, directing Lou to follow her the next morning. End of chapter 49